Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney, I remember growing up as a child and enjoying swimming and having cookouts at Prince Galitzin State Park. Your grandfather loved that park and made a point of taking us there several times every summer. Well, and Carol, as a Black African-American family, we have always done things considered outside of the box of what people think African-Americans should be doing when it comes to recreation. But since statistics show how the use of public city parks as well as state and national parks is low when it comes to Black folks, there's definitely some truth to that myth uh, that we were in the minority. Well, it's sad but true, Courtney. Even when it comes to outdoor spaces, systemic racism lurks behind bushes and trees in this country. And there are many stories of violence and segregation associated with parks. Now, 1957, as an example, a white mob challenged an, a Black African-American mother's club that had reserved park facilities for a picnic. The women and children needed a police escort to escape the violence. And here's another example. On Memorial Day 1961, another racial clash happened at Griffith Park in Los Angeles, where Black African-Americans have routinely been challenging the white domination at that park, especially at the uh, coveted merry-go-round that had uh, long been reserved just for white families. On Memorial Day uh, in 61, dozens of Los Angeles police carefully watched some Black African-Americans who were having a cookout there. They were, you know, having some fun and they had designated a special place at the um, uh, merry-go-round. Well, the police were there too. And in the late afternoon, the carousel operator accused a Black teenager of failing to pay for his ticket. Now, the boy denied the charge and he refused to get off prompting officers to drag him off his horse and beat him mercilessly. Once again, carousels and merry-go-rounds are, are the meeting grounds for a lot of these recreational stories that we're doing. Now, in the North and South, some whites perceive Black African-Americans who ventured into public parks as potentially dangerous and disruptive intruders. In the 1950s and 60s, for example, a white teenagers patrolled uh, Chicago parks, terrorizing African-Americans who frequented their turf. And if you listen to our episode on swimming pools, that was kind of the same idea. We're protecting our turf, but it's a, it's a public park, kids. It's a public park. <laughs> now, now today, even when we have instances, of, we even have instances recorded on social media of whites telling Black African-Americans to leave public parks or calling the police on them. So when African-Americans encounter this type of violence in urban park areas right in the middle of their city, it's no wonder they're not jumping on the road to visit Yosemite or Yellowstone Park all the way out in the boondocks. And that's why you hear a lot of African-Americans consider camping, hiking, 
all those kind of outdoorsy activities is stuff for white people. But the truth as to why African-Americans stay away from these places is dark and darker than some people even realize. Yes, it's true. There's a history here that a lot of people don't understand. You can't blame Black African-Americans at all once you know that history. As Yanira Castro, communications director for Outdoor Afro, noted, quote, the woods are where white people historically lynched Black people and are also where Black people hid to escape slavery. So there's basically a generational memory of trauma associated with the outdoors. Now, throughout their long history, the national parks have been a stark reflection of America's character. The policies of Jim Crow segregation were well established when President Woodrow Wilson signed into law the creation of the National Park Service on August 21st, 1916. Now, those restrictive Jim Crow codes barred Black African-American entrance to uh, parks across the country all the way through the end of World War II. And any Black travelers in campgrounds and picnic areas at public sites such as Rocky Mountain and Shenandoah National Parks might even come across posted signs that read, for whites only. Now, these were parks that Black African-American taxpayer money helped to pay for. You can pay, but you can't go. In 1945, Interior Secretary Harold Ickes and put a pin in that name because he'll come up later in the show, issued a bulletin mandating desegregation in all national parks. But it took years for that to be accomplished throughout the park system. Just like those public swimming pools and amusement parks and roller skating rinks that we've talked about in other episodes in our series on systemic racism and recreation. Now, despite their supposed desegregation, the national parks remained every bit as exclusionary as any public institution throughout much of the early 20th century. That is true, my dear niece. Now, the inscription over the north entrance of Yellowstone National Park quotes a phrase from the legislation that created the park in 1872. And that quote says, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. Now, the question of which people these words refer to has long been debated, especially since these parks were established on public land taken by force from Native Americans who had been living there for generations. Listeners, it's kind of like if you had a sports car that I claimed for myself, barred you from using it, but then one day decided that everyone in the neighborhood could use the car for their enjoyment and never acknowledge the fact that I stole it from you. You always come up with some very good examples of how this business of systemic racism works. Now, somebody um, that we need to think about that's really important to developing the national parks was a man named John Muir. Now, he's hailed as a hero for creating six of the national parks as well as the tenants of the Sierra Club. And, you know, that's the club that uh, really promotes conservation and preservation of lands in America. And he also came up with a popular outdoor and adventure magazine. But he had some very specific views about Black African-Americans. In his piece titled, 
thousand mile walk to the Gulf, which was published in 1867, he described black African-Americans as largely lazy and easygoing and unable to pick as much cotton as a white man. Well, you know, after I read that quote, I wondered, well, if that were the case, why weren't there any white people picking cotton? But as you say, my dear niece, I digress. And it's funny how black African-Americans only became lazy after they were working for free for so long. But I guess that Nero wouldn't have welcomed African-Americans to camp at any of the parks he gets credit for creating. Now, besides not being welcomed in these national parks, when these parks were being built, travel on the open road between them included a very, very real threat of racially motivated mistreatment, physical abuse, and even violence. Uh, perpetuated against Black African-Americans. So think sundown towns, just any bad and dangerous thing on the road was targeted towards African-American and road travel at the time. You're, you're very right. Safety was a big issue, Courtney. Uh, from 1936 to 1966, the Negro Motorist Green Book, published by a former U.S. Postal Service employee named Victor Hugo Green, listed detailed information on hotels, restaurants, drugstores, barbershops, and campsites that catered to a Black African-American clientele, including those near Yosemite and other national parks. The Green Book was considered very necessary if you were going to take a cross-country trip because it showed where people of color could receive travel services without having to suffer the indignities of racial discrimination or worse, violence. And with all you had to face trying to travel safely across America and the unwelcoming environment in the parks, it makes sense to me why the great outdoors isn't where you find a lot of African-Americans sometimes. I agree. But what a lot of people don't know is there was a cadre of Black African-Americans who, during the Depression years, contributed to improving and maintaining this wonderful gift we know as our national parks. And I believe you have a story about them. I do. And I'll be referencing an article by Ashley McNeil and Hannah Travers titled Moving Forward Initiative the African-American experience in the Civilian Conservation Corps. That's all about the little known group of black African-Americans in the Civilian Conservation Corps. Now in 1933, at the peak of the Great Depression, the overall employment rate in the United States was well over 20%. And African-Americans were hit the hardest, experiencing unemployment and an unemployment rate two to three times that of white Americans. In these desperate times, President Franklin D. Roosevelt created the Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, a federal work relief program from 1933 until 1942. It put three million unemployed young men to work, building and restoring America's natural resource infrastructure. In exchange for their labor, Corpsmen received a dollar per day, regular meals, housing and access to education, which is a pretty good deal. Now, though the CCC disbanded when the United States entered World War II, its model lives on in more than 130 modern cores across the country, most of which are managed by nonprofits or units of state and local government. The CCC was created with progressive intentions with the persuasion of Oscar de Priest, an Illinois representative, 
and the only black member of Congress at the time, the legislation that established the CCC included language forbidding discriminatory practices based on race, color, or creed. Well, that was all very visionary, Courtney. It sounds like joining the CCC would open up some opportunities for folks. It sounds awesome. Now, throughout the years of the program, more than 200,000 Black African Americans and 80,000 Native Americans, who you said before were the stewards of these lands originally, served in this program. However, their experience in many cases was entirely different from their white peers. Under the argument that segregation isn't discrimination, the CCC failed its promise of inclusivity. I'm disappointed. All right. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but the CCC existed during the era of Jim Crow segregation. And though CCC camps were at least in the beginning supposedly integrated, this usually only happened in areas where the African-American population was not large enough to warrant a separate camp. Now to reduce community outcry, many of the 150 African-American CCC camps were built on remote federal lands away from the public. Okay, so we don't even want to see these faces that appear to be Black African-Americans. Put them out as far away as you can. As far, as far away as you can. Now, in 1934, Robert Fetchner, the director of the CCC, ordered the Army to review review national practices around African-American enrollment in the CCC. The Army's report concluded that the CCC should not enforce segregation since it would make it harder to find locations for camps serving only Black corpsmen. Well, that makes complete sense. Why not integrate them and then you could put the camps just about anyway? It sounds like a lot like right, but that's not what happened. Now, in spite of the report, Fetchner issued an order in 1935 to make complete segregation of colored and white enrollees the rule. Mm. When the NAACP questioned Fetchner's um, action to maintain segregation in the CCC, he responded as follows. I'm satisfied that the Negro enrollees themselves prefer to be in companies composed exclusively of their own race. This segregation is not discrimination and it cannot be so constructed. The Negro companies are assigned to the same types of work and have identical equipment and are served the same food and have the same quarters as white enrollees. Mm, I had my doubts, but so he says. Now, Fetchner claims that Negro companies were assigned to the same types of work and had identical equipment and were served the same food and had the same quarters as white enrollees, but that was far from the truth. They were often assigned to less desirable jobs. Their quarters were less comfortable and their treatment overall could be very unpleasant. Now, at the time, Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ickes, remember I told you to put a pin in his name, which oversaw the CCC, stepped in to address some of Fetchner's systemically racist policies. In particular, he was vehemently opposed to Fetchner's racist policies against having African-Americans in leadership roles. So he didn't, Fetchner wouldn't even put African-Americans in leadership roles. And Ickes intended to deal with Fetchner 
on that issue. Well, this sounds like someone is about to get rank pulled on him. So let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out if that was the case. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. All righty, Courtney, we're back. And before the break, Robert Fetchner, director of the CCC and secretary of the interior, Harold Ickes, were headed for a showdown over Fetchner's racist policies. Who came out on top, Courtney? Well, I, I hate to break your enthusiasm. And I, hope, I know our listeners thought, oh, he's going to get it. Fetchner's going to get it. But in this case, and Carol and our very dear listeners, Rank did not win out systemic racism did. Even though he was the Secretary of the Interior, Interior, Harold Ickes lost the battle. To appease citizens concerned about the placement of all Black camps in their communities, only white supervisors were put in charge of those camps, leaving Black corpsmen little opportunity of advancement. President Roosevelt suggested this practice be relaxed to allow a few token colored foremen Uh, to obtain leadership. However, there was pushback from the community and legislators, as well as Fetchner's segregationist practices. And that meant African-American, Black African-American corpsmen generally did not have the same upward mobility as white corpsmen. Now, Black African-American enrollment was also limited in the CCC and capped at 10%, reflecting the racial profile of the national population ignoring the fact that African-Americans face disproportionately worse unemployment than white applicants. Now, even though the CCC's founding language, barring discrimination, qualified African-American applicants uh, for these jobs, they were frequently turned away. And when they did get hired, they were faced with hostile work environments that include being, being called racial slurs and hearing racist jokes, It also forced Black horsemen to the back of the line, which gave them the least desirable of quarters, equipment, um, and jobs. There was even an account of an African-American horseman being discharged from a camp in New Jersey for refusing to fan the flies away from a white officer. How derogatory, how demeaning, but uh, it's Jim Crow. Uh, Oh, Jim Crow. Now, CCC camps in some Southern states initially outright denied African-Americans under the argument they were needed to tend the fields. And this was the 30s and 40s now, not the 1800s, but they said they were needed to tend the fields. John D. LePerie, the Georgia director of the CCC stated all applicants in Clark County be classed A, B, and C based on need. And what this really meant Uh, was if you were African-American, you fell into class B or C, and you probably were not going to be recruited into the CCC. Now, despite Fetchner's segregation order, some camps remained integrated, 
particularly in the North and in regions with smaller Black African-American populations. Fechner allowed this because he felt, felt they had a natural adaptability of Negroes to serve as cooks. Okay, so they're only going to get a job in the kitchen because they can cook. They can, I can't cook, so guess what? Neither can my husband, so out the CCC we go. <laughs> so there goes, there goes that. There's that your mess. career path. In some integrated camps, Black African-American corpsmen indeed were assigned kitchen duties as opposed to more technical work outdoors. Now, also contrary to Fetchner's claims that African-American camps completed the same projects as white camps, there were accounts where Black camps in some regions only did routine work and were not assigned special or priority projects. These, these would have been projects where the men would have learned specialized skills that could have helped them find employment outside the CCC, which was the goal. Now, and that's this, the whole purpose. The idea was you were supposed to learn some skills that once you left the core, you could translate that into a job on the outside. Exactly. I can cook at home. Teach me something that I need to, to get and maintain a job to support my family. Mm -hmm. And that's, they would have gotten that with those specialty projects, but obviously those were reserved for the whites. Exactly. Now, despite the macro and micro aggressions, it's undeniable that black African-American corpsmen played a significant role in the conservation efforts and development of America's public lands and national parks. Now there is some good news and that is black African-American corpsmen to some extent gained much needed financial assistance throughout their service. And tens of thousands of African-American corpsmen participated in the educational programming from elementary level to college level. There were countless anecdotal reports from African-American corpsmen who were grateful for their opportunity to learn and work in the CCC. Now, eventually many CCC members went on to what were considered at the time Negro job. So imagine learning all of this, being outside, and maybe not working on specialty projects, but getting educated, and then going back to regular life and becoming a chauffeur, a cook, or a gardener. Since desirable public land jobs were not open to African-American men, or were more likely, even if they were qualified, to go to white applicants. Now, to this day, more than 200 thousand black corpsmen of the CCC remain those hidden figures in the development of our nation's uh, public lands and national parks. And I'd like to say thank you to those gentlemen. And I'd like to thank them as well. I had no idea until we started working on this project how important their work was, or even that there was work in the Civilian Con uh, Conservation Corps that involves so many Black African-American men. Now, we'd like to believe that nature and the great outdoors would escape the blight of systemic racism. But as we saw, these men who helped build and maintain the nation's national parks went unsung, unrecognized, and when it came to employment opportunities, unrewarded. That seems to be the case when we've talked about situations like these, Aunt Carol. From the military to the boardroom, Black African-Americans face systemic racism, preventing them from equal employment, but also an equal opportunity to just enjoy the very recreational facilities that they help build. 
Now, maybe if African-Americans do the history of how we and they were involved in creating some of these parks, they'd be more willing to visit them. So what's going on today, Carol? What's going on to make outdoor recreation, particularly in national parks, more inviting? Well, Courtney, oddly enough, some of that change uh, intended to make it more inviting is starting with names. Now, we know that what a place is called has important ramifications. So Representative Al Green and Senator Elizabeth Warren reintroduced versions of the reconciliation in place names. Now, the bill would establish an advisory board, including tribal representatives from Native Americans and civil rights experts that would be able to make recommendations to Congress about renaming federal land units like national forests and parks and so on. The board would solicit proposals from tribal nations and other groups and provide an opportunity for the public to comment on potential name changes. Well, in the words of Bill Shakespeare, what, you know, by a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. So what's the big deal about a name, Andrew? Well, as an old English teacher, I might agree with you and Shakespeare, but this is not the case. A 2015 survey found that 1,441 federally recognized places have names containing racial or other slurs. Now, a few disturbing examples of parks and public lands and and other features that have been paid for with our taxpayer dollars have potentially offensive names, and they include these. Now, let's start with Mount Evans Wilderness and its namesake peak on Colorado's Front Ridge, named after John Evans, their state's second territorial governor. Evans also besides being governor, commissioned the voluntary cavalry that carried out the Sand Creek Massacre. That was a horrible massacre in which as many as 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians, mostly children, women, and old men, were brutally killed. Evans later attempted to defend the massacre. Now, another offensive name, Negro Bar State Park near Sacramento. (laughs) Yes, it, it, it makes you call on the Lord. Negro Bar State Park <laughs> near Sacramento, California is named for gold rush era black miners. Well, that's nice, but that's cool. Yeah, it's cool, but still the name. Now, here's the part that got me. For a long period, its accepted name contained the N-word instead of Negro. And it's even the N-word is reflected in a 1941 U.S. geological survey map. Shockingly, locals say it was regularly referred to by the N-word until sometime up until the 1960s. Well, regular doesn't make it right. That's awful, Aunt Carol. It is. It is. Now, there are also numerous federally recognized places with Negro in their names, including four places in Louisiana, Mississippi and Oklahoma named dead Negro. And that's why we don't go to the park. I'll tell you. you, I'm laughing because it's just bizarre that this could happen, but it does. Now, here's another another park that uh, probably um, folks don't even have a clue about its history. Wolseley Peak Wilderness in Arizona's Gia Bend Mountains is named for King Wolseley. He was a pioneer, prospector, and rancher in the 1860s. 
Now, Woolsey was an unrepentant killer of Apache men, women, and children, and reportedly raped a 10-year-old Yaqui girl he had enlisted to work in the kitchen at his ranch. Oh, we need to do better with these names. Yes, these names, these names. Now let's talk about Gifford Pinchot National Park, National Forest, actually. It's home to a popular stretch along the Pacific Crest Trail in Washington, and it's named for the former U.S. Forest Service chief, many of whom uh, many people consider to be a key figure in the American conservation movement. In fact, when I was growing up, there's a park in Harrisburg called Pinchot Park, and we used to love to go there. And I I had no idea that for much of his life, Gifford Pinchot was an active eugenics advocate and one of the many early conservationists influenced by racist and, and white supremacist pseudo-academic Madison Grant. So uh, Pinchot Park, what can I say? And it's so it's so weird how these names are, not, not like that Negro Park or wherever that is, but how you know this is a part of our lives and memories and good like you have good memories at that park only to find out the systemic racism and just peeking out behind the park bench like exactly look over here yeah 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 i guess we just need to do a little more work and researching um now here's one that probably doesn't need a lot of research for us to know his history we can't forget robert e lee now, according to the uh, nine, to, uh, 2019 Southern Poverty Law Center analysis, Lee is by a wide margin the most honored Confederate figure in the U.S. in terms of names bestowed on monuments and other sites. Now, remember, the Confederates were rebels. They were traitors. They wanted to, and they did try to secede from the country but this man has his name yes and they lost and they lost however we have robert e lee sequoia trees in yosemite national park and king's canyon national park are named for the legendary confederate leader Despite efforts to whitewash Lee's legacy, he was a cruel white supremacist and defender of slavery he once wrote that the painful discipline suffered by enslaved Black people was ultimately a character and morality building exercise necessary for their instruction as a race. And people like defend him being named after schools and trees and things like that. He like you have that quote there and he lost. I have lost speech and debates and no one has given me any trophy. I didn't get a statue. I didn't get a park. I don't have a tree. I don't have a bench. I don't have anything. You, but, had you been a Confederate soldier, you might. And I, maybe, maybe, but this history is deplorable. And like you hear us laughing and trying to laugh it off because sometimes black history is so painful and so blatant and the racism is so blatant. If you don't laugh, you will cry. And Absolutely. so for our listeners that might be taken aback by, oh, why are they chuckling? This is, but we're not serious all the time, but this is one of those episodes that something so beautiful as our country's national park is besmirched by someone like Robert E. Lee. But like I said, the history is deplorable, but I can imagine there has got to be, got to be some pushback in renaming these sites. 
Well, and that's probably why there's a push to have a federal uh, have federal legislation to do that, because some of the Confederate statues are even on federal lands. But we've seen the violence and vitriol that's happened when there have been calls to take them down. Yet an article in Outdoor Afro titled Confederate Symbols Are Pollution sums it up for me. They argue these symbols meet the definition of pollution, which the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as, quote, substances that make land, water, air, etc., dirty and not safe or suitable to use. And thus, because they're pollution, they deserve to be taken down. Here, here. Now, racial slurs and monuments are only part of the story in terms of employment at national parks and federal lands. Studies show that mm, things are not so good there. Employees are overwhelmingly at the National Park Service white males. And the Forest Service doesn't fare much better. In 2002, there were only about 1,300 Black African-Americans working in the Forest Service out of approximately 44,000 employees. And besides not seeing many African-American faces employed at the national parks, we don't see them in advertisements about recreation or leisure either. That's right, Courtney. According to Derek Martin, who did a study of media images in mainstream magazines, there is, in his words, a racialized outdoor leisure identity that views outdoor enthusiasts generally as strong, young, and white. And even though more people of color are now being featured in mainstream advertising, Martin found the majority of advertisements featuring people in outdoors used white models. Now, President Barack Obama's administration really tried to address the lack of diversity in America's national parks. Yes, yes, he did. It's an idea that President Obama advanced uh, through a presidential memorandum to the National Park Service and other public land agencies in 2017. It's called Promoting Diversity and and Inclusion in Our National Parks, National Forests, and Other Public Lands and Waters. Now, this document encouraged park stewards to advocate for a more inclusive and complete story of America, advocate uh, including diverse uh, voices in the decision-making process for new public lands and waters. And it recommends increasing the number of outreach programs dedicated to providing better access for diverse communities. Now, it looks like President Obama's idea might be working. People of color across the United States have begun empowering themselves in groups like Outdoor Afro to become outdoor enthusiasts. Even your niece and my cousin Melanie takes hikes and walks and shows her friends all kinds of hiking trails around her own county. Now, many start by visiting national parks and then learning the hidden history about the park. Now, for example, there's a story of Lancelot Jones, the son of a former slave who sold his land to the National Park Service so it could be preserved as a part of Bispane National Park in the Florida Keys. Uh, Buffalo Soldier members of all African-American regiment and all African-American regiment of the United States Army were among the nation's first park rangers and built the first marked trail at Yosemite. And let's not forget on July 9th, 1964, seven days after the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, a mountaineer named Charles Madison Crenshaw became the first 
Black American to reach the top of Denali, then known as Mount McKinley, the highest peak in North America. More recently, in 2013, the first all-Black team of climbers also attempted the summit of Denali. Well, Courtney, that's impressive history, and it needs to be known. And there are many, many other examples where Black African-Americans are doing some amazing feats involving the out-of-doors. But it takes money to do those kinds of feats. And Black African-American travelers now reportedly represent a $63 billion market. And there's been an uptick in Black adventure travel and organizations that support and encourage people of color to venture safely into the outdoors. Now, Black and brown folks are now posting their adventures to Facebook and Instagram pages, and uh, they're involved in, in groups like Outdoor Afro, Latino Outdoors, Brown People Camping, Natives Outdoors, Black People Who Hike, Brown Folks Fishing, and many, many others. And get this, Courtney, one of the latest expressions of Black travel solidarity is a new startup organization called Inclusive Journeys, which aims to create a digital version of the old Green Book. Co-founder Parker McMullen Bushman says this new version will give the ability of travelers to look ahead in, in time and know which businesses are inclusive, where Black African-Americans will be welcome. Now, who knew that the Green Book would be back in the Internet age? But it is a little sad to say, even today, it's still need. It's need. It's still needed as a resource to keep Black African Americans safe on the road. But Black African Americans have always kept those mental notes, or did that look across the room to see if there's other Black people around or if it's safe. So we're actually combining the traditions of African oral traditions of where the best hunting grounds are, the Green Book from the the 20th century and the internet age all into one. And I think that's pretty cool. Well, I do too, because having a resource like that seems to be needed still, Courtney, just like you said, since at some parks, there still is disparate treatment by an implicit racial bias by the park staffers. Here's an example. Recently, an organization that was doing research at Yosemite National Park in California invited a diverse group of women to the park. These were all distinguished uh, women in their fields. They were scientists and doctors and so on. And as part of the event, eight female academics, four of them white or Hispanic and four black African-Americans drove into the park. Now the organizers told participants not to pay the entrance fee and to inform gate agents that their fees were waived because they were visiting that research station that was in Yosemite Park. Remember the eight women were going in to do some work there. Now here's where things get a little dicey. The white and Hispanic drivers gave the agents the information as directed and were welcomed and waved right on through without a problem. Now, the four Black African-American scholars entered the park at different times and entrances, and they gave the same information. Now, get this. In all four cases, the Black African-American professors were extensively questioned. They were made to fill out a silly form, which required extra and unnecessary effort, and a check-in with the research center staff before they were reluctantly let into the park. Now, one of the professors was even questioned about her college degrees, the title of her research project, and her university affiliation, and she was also asked to provide a faculty ID. 
the agents appeared totally incapable of imagining that a Black African-American woman could hold a PhD and visit a research station for a scholarly event. Wow, so we can't drive, we can't walk, we can't shop, we can't eat, we can't laugh, and now we cannot even research while being Black. Nope, uh, just about <laughs> everything is, prevent is prohibited. But I'll end with this positive note. National Park Service's ranger Shelton Johnson said, if Martin Luther King Jr. were alive today, he would be first and foremost to say, we as a people need to go to Yellowstone. We need to go to the Grand Canyon because if this is America's best idea and we played a role in its creation, how dare we not choose that for ourselves? And as the old folk song goes, this land is your land, this land is my land, and this land was made for you and me. So I hope our listeners of all races hop in the car sometime as uh, summer ends and heads out to even your local park, your local national park, or, or just an outdoor activity. And while you're on your way, visit our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry where you can listen to old episodes and send us a shout out that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question why are they so angry as always we hope you learn something so you can see it say it and confront it <laughs>